Yeah, 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 yeah. Hey guys, my name is Alex, and you're listening to the Thousand Movie Project Podcast. Listening once again to the breakdown from my day of study. The day of study, as I've mentioned the past couple weeks, is my routine of devoting like all of Sunday morning to reading the news or comic books or whatever whatever I'm reading at the moment. It's the day of the week where I focus on like creative input rather than output, and more pointedly, it's time of the week where I just try to catch up on what's going on in the world. Before we get into talking about the stuff that I read, I had to call Best Buy, because I'm looking to buy one of those crane neck phone stands so I can make drawing videos, and this way I was on hold for like 15 minutes, and this was the hold music. I was listening to the music, and I was like, who made this? Not only who made this, but who was the person at Best Buy's corporate office who was like, we need a tune, goddammit. <laughs> we need something that the callers will listen to when they're on hold and that will evoke... What? Like, what is this music supposed to evoke? Is it supposed to cheer me up? Because it's kind of annoying to hear this peppy, like, xylophone music when I'm waiting to ask the people at Best Buy if they're carrying something that they will not have. I don't know what it is with Best Buy lately, but it seems like every time I've called them over the past couple years, like, do you have the movie Airplane on DVD? Do you have a Chromebook? Do you have gift cards? Not only do they not have it, they then keep me on the phone while they check their database and they're like, sorry, no Best Buy on the planet has the very popular item you're requesting. But then they always like add the caveat like, hey, if you'd like to order it, we can promise to possibly maybe receive it within two weeks and then you can drive back here and pick it up. Which is so, it's so weird that they even pitch that. It seems like such an antiquated practice to wait two weeks to have something delivered to a retail store far from your home and then drive there and pick it up. In that respect, like in a bunch of respects, Best Buy seems like a relic of 2004. Every time I walk into Best Buy, I feel like they're gonna have some huge display for like their spiffy new telegraph machine or like their steam-powered icebox. I'm also kind of senselessly irked by their elaborate like snack and candy and soda display because when I go in there and I'm like, hey, do you have a computer? And they're like, no, but we have Funyuns, it just irks me that they should have so much soda and none of the technology that I need. <laughs> anyway, that's not a good note to start the show on, but here we are, let's get to the news. I didn't open the New York Times this Sunday, or the Herald, or a comic book, because I, I got so ensnared in the New Yorker, and, and also I had to read a big chunk of this book that I'm... I'm interviewing the author on the show in a few weeks, but the New Yorker has been on fire lately, and like, and this week's issue was fucking amazing. Like, last week they had a piece about the artist Carrie Marshall, mainly because it didn't just work as like a great profile of an individual. By simple merit of that piece having been a thorough and engaging story about an artist who stuck to his craft and matured and went through phases and whatever, it ended up being like incredibly inspirational. And like, as I was reading it, I wanted to like rush home and do weird auditory shit with the podcast and like draw things. Like I just wanted to get, it made me want to get artsy and creative. And that's got me thinking about 
like motivational shit, incidentally, because I told you last week that I had been on this. Ca- I don't know where it came from, but it started like as soon as I finished that novel that I was working on. I finished it like two Fridays ago. For some reason, I was craving all of this motivational stuff. And so, I, you know, I was binging these videos and these podcasts and reading these kinds of blog posts and self help books. And so I had that motivational rhetoric in my head shit like hustle and drive and momentum and keep your head down and focus and double down, triple down on your fucking ambitions. And those words that they use, they can become a kind of chant and they can give me, it works on me, it gives me like a kind of boost and it makes me work a little harder or think differently. But I shit you not, those, those phrases, when it comes to motivation, they amount to nothing in comparison to just a really well-told story about an artist doing his thing. And it was interesting to realize that, um, that like the language of those motivational videos are just candy. They're flavorful and rich and they give you a dopamine kick and a sugar high, but it's an empty high. There's no nutritional value to it. It's made me think that if you are, if you are actually interested in getting some motivation for your art, rather than looking at self-help and motivational material, you should turn toward the story, the well-told stories of artists. But anyway, We're not talking about that, we're talking about the news. This week, there was a long-form piece in The New Yorker that was just as amazing as that Kerry Marshall piece, and it was by Evan Osnos. And Osnos, incidentally, kind of dazzled me a few months ago, like right after I turned 30, because something happened in my brain. I still don't totally understand it, but I became kind of a junkie for presidential biographies. I've read five of them since turning 30, and they, they tend to be chunky things, so like to have read five feels like a bit of an achievement for me. I read Obama's memoir, I read the Jimmy Carter biography, the Ronald Reagan biography, the third volume of the of the Lyndon Johnson biography by Robert Caro, but I also read Evan Osnos's little 200-page biography of Joe Biden, which he wrote, I think he wrote as like a gamble when Biden was running for president, but but he wasn't the Democratic nominee yet. And then Osnos hit the jackpot. <laughs> he fucking took a risk on writing a whole ass book about a 77-year-old white establishment politician, and that dude <laughs> became the president, and the book ended up selling like a shitload of copies once, once Biden got elected. And um, I read the book quickly, because it's brief, and uh, it gives you just like a gloss of Biden's life. I wouldn't go so far as to say it's hagiographic, like it doesn't make Biden seem like an ubermensch or a saint or anything, but it's also not quite warts and all either. It does a good job of straddling the fence. Like if you hate Biden or if you love Biden, you'll probably walk away from it still hating or loving him. What I liked most about it and what I most annotated in the book was like the, it's a fucking carnival of Biden's greatest gaffes. Like when he was addressing a crowd and he was like, folks, I've known eight presidents in my life, three of them intimately. Okay, actually, full disclosure, um, I, I had, took a bunch of CBD, so I guess, like, I'm not stone-stoned, but I'm a little bit stoned. So, and few things on this planet tickle me more than, than Joe Biden's gaffes over the years. And also, it's this miraculous thing that my brain does to me. It's a wonderful favor. Like, I keep forgetting what the gaffes are. So, um, I'm gonna pull up. This is Politico, Joe being Joe. The best Biden gaffes, slip-ups, uncomfortable. All right, let's go through it. This is Biden on the campaign trail. You got the first mainstream African-American who is articulate and bright and clean and a nice looking guy. I mean, that's a storybook, man. Holy shit, I don't remember that one. (laughs) Look, Biden said, John McCain's last-minute economic plan does nothing to tackle the number one job facing the middle class, and it happens to be, as Barack says, 
a three-letter word. Jobs. All right, Biden on the presidency. Quote, I'd rather be at home making love to my wife while my children are asleep. <laughs> okay, in 2010 he said, here I am, the first Irish Catholic vice president in the history of the United States. Barack Obama is the first African-American in history of the United States of America. Theodore Roosevelt said, talk softly but carry a big stick. I promise you, the president has a big stick. I promise you. <laughs> Quote, a man I'm proud to call my friend, a man who will be the next president of the United States, Barack America. <laughs> Okay, Biden on the vice presidency, quote, Hillary, this is from 2008, Hillary Clinton is as qualified or more qualified than I am to be vice president of the United States of America. Quite frankly, it might have been <laughs> a better pick than me. All right, this is Biden, <clears throat> April 12th, 2010. <laughs> no one can say a negative thing about Dan Quayle. When he was vice president, he built that pool at the vice president's residence. I just want you to know, he is my favorite vice president. Joe Biden on convenience stores. Um, this is June 2006. He says, quote, You cannot go to a 7-Eleven or a Dunkin' Donuts unless you have a slight Indian accent. Period. I'm not joking. Period. <laughs> to a Missouri state senator in a wheelchair. <laughs> this is 2008. Stand up, Chuck. Let him see ya. Oh, God love you. What am I talking about? I tell you what, you're making everybody else stand up though, pal. <laughs> Joe Biden in 2010 on the subject of his wife, Dr. Jill Biden, quote, I've been sleeping with a teacher for a long time, but it's always been the same teacher. <laughs> Joe Biden on the women of Ukraine, July 2009, quote, I cannot believe that a Frenchman visiting Kiev went back home and told his colleagues he, he discovered something and didn't say he discovered the most beautiful woman in the world. Ugh. Ugh. There's, there, is a, there is a creepy Joe. Joe Biden on the stimulus bill, 2009. Quote, if we do everything right, if we do it with absolute certainty, there's still a 30% chance we're gonna get it wrong. Uh, Joe Biden on his audience, 2012. Quote, what I'm trying to say without boring you too long at breakfast, and you all look dull as hell, I might add, the dullest audience I've ever spoken to, just sitting there, <laughs> staring at me, Pretend you like me! <laughs> I remember in college absolutely loving Joe Biden. I thought he was the funniest shit in the world. And mainly it was easy to laugh at him because like the longest running joke in Washington, and it is kind of true, is that the vice president doesn't really do anything. When George H.W. Bush was a vice president to Ronald Reagan, one of his key jobs was to attend the funerals of every foreign dignitary just to be there as like a representative of the White House. And it got to be so arduous and consistent that he developed a tagline for himself, which was, you die, I fly. <laughs> so like, I always thought he was just like funny and aloof and kind of avuncular, but then when he started running for president, and like he became the nominee, I was like, okay, please, please be not quite your normal self. Like it's cool to have the living manifestation of a Smirnoff ice as your vice president, because when Joe Biden was vice president, it's like he wasn't in charge of anything, but he had to, like he had to be invited to all of these like very serious events and everyone knew like he was gonna do something embarrassing. It's like if Pauly Shore joined the mafia. Dude, I just saw that Pauly Shore is lobbying hard to create 
a weaselverse where he's gonna re- he wants to reprise the roles of all of his weasel characters from the early 90s i kind of feel bad for him i remember i think he was on joe rogan and he was so earnest saying like i just want to do films i want to be able to do films again i love doing films my girlfriend and i were just talking this morning about macaulay culkin and how he's like turned out so well and it's his it's a cool story where he is now in his life but um recently we were sitting at the bar and for some reason i googled amanda Bynes from nickelodeon and it was like really disturbing um I remember she kind of disappeared when I was in college. Like, she had tweeted something like, I want Drake to destroy my pussy. And it was, I mean, I'm sure there was some toxic shit on Twitter about it, but this was in the heyday of Twitter, of Tumblr, before it got bought out by Yahoo, and Yahoo was like, all right, you can't have porn on Tumblr anymore. And then everyone was like, well, then why am I going to stay on Tumblr? <laughs> but I remember, like, the, the, the major response on Tumblr, you know, and the people on Tumblr had mostly grown up with Amanda Bynes' content, um, they were like is she okay? And then all the discourse was rather than doing like, oh, you know, another child star goes off the deep end. It was all very empathetic, sympathetic, talking about mental health and shit. Anyway, Evan Osnos wrote a piece in this week's New Yorker about white collar criminals who go to prison. And then after they get out of prison, they join these support groups where they, they have to, the way he put it was they're detoxing from power. And it was like a fascinating article, but was also fascinating. And I'm really not sure like how to address it is a piece by Dexter Filkins, and it was at the top of the of the talk of the town section, which is like the opening comments. And in his piece, he's writing about the extraction of U.S. forces from Afghanistan under Joe Biden's orders, and the immediate collapse, and uh, the, how the government immediately collapsed afterward, and the Taliban took over. In his piece, he had this phrase that I thought was super spot on. He said, "Quote in the cosmopolitan bubble of Kabul, the Talibs, which are the Taliban fighters." The Talibs were greeted less as a liberating army than as a kind of theocratic motorcycle gang, rough-armed men rolling into town demanding allegiance. I thought that <clears throat> the image of a theocratic motorcycle gang is so fucking spot on. I thought that was like the most novelistic fucking way to put it. But the rest of the piece creates a kind of headache for me because it makes Afghanistan sound like this fairly hopeless place. And I don't know if that's true. Like he writes of Afghanistan in 1996 saying, a withering occupation by the Soviet Union had killed more than a million people, and the civil war that followed killed at least 50,000 more. The populace was impoverished and illiterate, and the city lay in ruins. If Kabul was desolate, it was also peaceful, and its weary citizens were grateful for that. What I took away from this piece is the idea that Afghanistan is basically, like, doomed. That even the government that we had sort of put into place was just irreparably corrupt. Now it's been replaced by the Taliban, which he said, which Vilkin says is riven with factions. So whenever the Taliban spokesman says something to the press, we don't know which of the Taliban's professed ideologies is the one by which he intends to sort of, you know, wield his power over the country. But just Filkins's piece makes the whole country seem like this hopeless shambles, but then the very next piece in Talk of the Town is, is by an Afghan filmmaker named Sarah Karini. And she describes how two weeks prior to the government's collapse, she was helping to orchestrate a film festival in Kabul. And she talks about how vibrant and relaxed the atmosphere was and that women were going about leisurely and they were drinking in cafes, they were walking to school, and all of that serenity that she portrays is gone now. And she describes the experience of going to the airport when it was first announced that the Taliban was taking over the city and that she was shocked to see like every major government official was there at the airport too, trying to just get out of the country. 
So Dexter Filkins is writing about Afghanistan from over here in the United States, and Karini is writing about it as an Afghan from inside Afghanistan, and they are depicting two totally different places, neither of which seems to be quite trustworthy. Like, obviously, these talk of the town pieces are only like 500 words, so you can only present so much information, but like naturally you would say, okay, the account we should depend on is the account that comes from the person who was raised in that country, who live, who lives there currently and who saw the collapse firsthand. She was living there for a long time, so she had a sense of like how radically things were changing. Like off the bat, yes, that is the testimony that you should, that you should rely on. But at the same time, like I think it's a, there's, it's a Cormac McCarthy phrase, you can't observe something from inside it. So I don't know whose impressions are more trustworthy. The, the, those of the ostensibly neutral-eyed foreign expert, Dexter Filkins, who gives what feels like a pretty reductive assessment of the situation, or, you know, the impressions of the person who is there in the thick of it, where this isn't, this isn't her, you know, expert PhD journalistic insights into a situation. This is her firsthand witnessed understanding of what's going on on the ground. So the piece by Dexter Filkins might help you to sort of understand the historical context of what's going on here, but it's the piece from Karini where she mentioned things like, you know, nobody was running in the street until I shouted, the Taliban are coming, and then they started running, and, you know, I had this hard drive with 3,000 films, and I had three birds, and I just left them all behind, I went straight to the airport. So each of these pieces... I don't know. I have to imagine this was some sort of strategic placement on the editor's behalf, David Remnick, that he put this, I don't know, the Filkins piece next to it. I don't know. It was kind of a mindfuck, and it distracted me from the rest of the talk of the town. Frankly, I don't think I'm doing this, but what, what's coming to mind, it's almost like a thing that, like, dare not speak its name, is where I'm like, is the reason I'm, I'm, I, I don't know, I'm doubting the perceptions of Karini because she's a woman. Like, is there a part of my, there must be a part of my brain that is comparing these two pieces in a gendered perspective. Like, here, first, at the very beginning of the, of the magazine, we have a male, cold-eyed, uh, you know, analytical take, and then we have a more visceral, emotional take, and it's, and it's by a woman, and then you think, okay, well, the emotional one is by the woman, and then the cold analytical one by the man. When you police your own intake of material and your own ways of looking at things, you it becomes clear that sometimes you're, up, you're employing these biases on some unconscious level. You don't even realize you're doing it, but I knew, like, I don't even want to, like, address it out loud. It'll be interesting to look at the letters page of next week's issue and the week after that to see if anyone noticed this thing and... I don't, I don't know. Anyways. Moving on to the Osnos piece, uh, which is called The Big House, referring to prison, of course. It's a really fascinating portrait of like these, I don't, I shouldn't use the phrase because I've never used it before. Fat cats on Wall Street um, who commit white collar crime. You know, they rob people blind and then they go to jail. And after they get out of jail, they want to find a way of being re-embraced into society. Osnos puts it really well by saying that these people, they defraud the public. They don't care what happens to the public when they're stealing everyone's money, but then after prison, they're desperate for the public's forgiveness. So that that idea of forgiveness has always been very... I've always found it very interesting. There Again, to cite Cormac McCarthy for the millionth time on this show, there is... I, I think it's in No Country for Old Men where he says that... Um, Forgiveness is the one thing you have to do individually. Like, you can get together with a group of people and you can love something or hate something. Like, you can go to a Star Trek convention and collectively love Star Trek with a bunch of strangers, or you can go to a clan meeting and collectively hate every minority group in America, amongst others. Forgiveness, however, as McCarthy puts it, can't be 
a whole group cannot collectively forgive. It has to happen on an individual basis. So the idea of forgiveness, any anytime that a complex portrait of the forgiveness question is 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 aroused, I'm interested. But also just, just that thing of not caring about the people they're defrauding is something Osnos pays special attention to. He writes in his piece, quote, In thought experiments, people agree to sacrifice the life of someone they can't see far more readily than that of someone who stands before them. In interviews with people who had committed price-fixing or fraud, it turns out that many of them had never had a personal encounter with the victims. He also says, quote, Behind each new revelation of white-collar crime lurks an uncomfortable question about some of America's most lucrative businesses. Are they attracting rogues or grooming them? Also, if you want to get your blood boiling, he talks about how after September 11th, the government reallocated a bunch of its resources toward fight toward counterterrorism measures, which of course makes all the sense in the world, but he writes, quote, Republican lawmakers cut the budget of the Internal Revenue Service so sharply that it had the same number of special agents in 2017 as it had half a century prior, even though the national population had grown by two-thirds. Getting away from the quote, what that means is that with fewer IRS agents, there are fewer people investigating white-collar crime, which I know sounds pretty benign because no one's throwing a gun around, but white-collar crime destroys people's lives. It bankrupts people. It could very well bankrupt the country or create a recession in which, as with every recession and depression that we have seen, scores of people kill themselves. It squanders people's futures because they can't afford to go to college. They can't afford to do a million things. Osnos writes, quote, the effects of impunity have become more blatant since the Great Recession of 2007 to 2009, when, infamously, almost no top executives went to prison, despite the loss of more than $19 trillion in household wealth. At the time, leaders at the Department of Justice claimed that they could not prove fraudulent intent by Wall Street titans who were many layers removed from the daily handling of toxic securities. Now, I'll be honest with you, I don't really understand how securities work, I don't understand how shit on Wall Street works, but I do work in hospitality, so I do know, like, what f how, how to spot a fucking douchebag. And, like, everyone that is being described here sounds, sounds like a douchebag, but even that sounds, to call them a douchebag sounds reductive, it's pathological. That's what you, it's the, it's the towering narcissism, narcissism that, that, that is so exacerbated by their wealth that it, 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 it it moves into, like, sociopathy. I remember in high school, like, I noticed that whenever I would go to these PG-13 comedies on, on Friday nights with my friends, the villains tended to be, tended to always be rich men, uh, which I, I just always noticed without quite getting it. But now I fucking understand how, like, if you're making a movie that is supposed to scratch the entertainment itch of, the, of a working class, massive movie-going audience, you want to titillate them by showing what it looks like when a fucking sociopathic millionaire gets humiliated. Which is itself a weird, dark, tricky cycle because these movies are being made by like soci sociopathic, predominantly white multimillionaires in the production studio who like they know that in order to sort of entertain and mollify the masses, they're going to feed them entertainment in which their likeness, their very own rich white likeness is being like vilified and humiliated. And by depicting it, they become more wealthy, more powerful. By consistently depicting their own humiliation and ruination, they successfully stave it off. Anyway, okay, this is going on pretty long. There's other things from the issue to talk about, but I feel like I'm overstaying my welcome. Thank you for listening to this week's recap of The Day of Study. I hope it was worth your while. Let me know if this is something you'd like to hear more of, because it's, it's an easy content for me, but I'd be interested to know if like you prefer more conversational, like the more conventional 
scripted stuff that's more like idea oriented. Also, if you like what you're hearing, it would mean the world to me if you would give the show a good rating on Apple Podcasts. And if you're feeling extra generous, throw maybe a few bucks toward the Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash thousand movie project. And when you do so, you'll be granted access to a bunch of other bonus, more personal episodes. And you'll also get a little something something in the mail from yours truly. Anyways, thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next time. Thank you.